flowing robes and love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. As Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Truly, I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. This is the story of the widow's mite. It starts off with Jesus going after the Pharisees one last time before they crucify him. He attacks their pride. They like to be seen. They like to sit at the banquet tables. They like to be admired. And he goes after their hypocrisy. He points out again how they look good on the outside, but something is very, very wrong on the inside. We either essentially glorify God with our lives, or we essentially glorify ourselves. It's very hard to do both. The Pharisees chose. But in his description of the Pharisees, Jesus not only attacks their pride and their hypocrisy, he levels a devastating charge, one that made him a real threat to the standing of the Pharisees in in Israel, one that shook up the status quo, one, to be honest, that got Jesus killed. You see, Jesus didn't get killed because he was such a nice guy. Jesus got killed because he turned over tables in the temple. He called out crooks by name. He messed up the money scam that was going on. If he had just minded his own business, they would have never bothered him. But see, he points out that they misused funds designated for the poor and disadvantaged and the widows. They were skimming off the top money for themselves that were supposed to go to the poorest. They were stealing from those who were the most vulnerable in society, those God called Israel to care for the most. The long prayers of the Pharisees made Jesus nauseous. No wonder, he said, my house is supposed to be a house of prayer. You have made it a den of thieves. God cares for the hurting. He cares for the poor. He cares for people who life has crushed. The calling of the church is to care for the same people that Jesus cares for. Christ calls us to identify not with those who sit at places of honor with long flowing robes, but those who life has broken. He calls us to identify with the widows, not the Pharisees, the poor, not the powerful. Noted psychiatrist Robert Coles tells of the day in his young in his life when he went to see Dorothy Day. Dorothy Day was a very famous Catholic social worker who did a lot of writing. She was very famous in her day. She worked with people primarily who were down on their luck. Coles had just finished his medical training in psychiatry at Harvard, and so he decided it would be a noble and good experience to work for a time with the famous social worker Dorothy Day. It would add to his resume. When he arrived, she was in a soup kitchen sharing her lunch and her love and in deep conversation with a homeless person. Cole knew he should not disturb them. He also recognized that this homeless woman had some mental health issues and was somewhat incoherent at the time. He could see signs of alcohol and drug abuse, and she obviously was very hungry and deeply troubled. Day was so tuned into this woman, 
so engrossed and attentive to what she was saying that she didn't even notice Cole standing in the doorway. When the woman had finished her lunch and discussion, Coles approached them. Day must have guessed that Coles wanted to address her, not the person she was ministering to, but as Coles walked toward them, Day looked up and said, you wanted to speak with one of us? With one of us, Coles remembered. In that moment, in that one respectful, humble phrase, Coles said, Dorothy Day taught me more about social work more about therapy, more about helping people, more about the Spirit of Christ than I had learned in all those years at Harvard. Would you like to speak with one of us? You see, that is what the gospel does. The gospel is inclusive. It invites us all to the table of the Lord. It welcomes and respects those who society often distances from or dismisses. What the gospel does is it turns a them into an us. It's true for rich and poor. It's true for men and women. It's true for educated and street smart. It's true for black and white and Hispanic and Asian. The, the gospel turns them into us. We all are brothers and sisters at the Lord's table. As a contrast to these Pharisees who stole from widows, I mean, it took a lot of gall to steal from people right there at the temple and then make a show of their own giving with the money they'd just stolen. That takes something. It says Jesus watched them. Jesus saw. You know, sometimes when I see injustices going on, I have to remember Jesus watches. He's watching them. You know, when I see people go, well, this and this and this happened, we need to, we need to take them to jail and fry them. I just, I go, look, Jesus will take care of this. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay, says the Lord. Leave it to him. But it says he saw somebody else that day. He did not just see the Pharisees. It said he saw a widow making a contribution. Now, contributions for running the temple were placed in receptacles shaped like a trumpet set up on temple grounds. There were 13 of these upside-down trumpets with which people could walk by and put in their offerings anytime they wanted to. The coins this widow gave were two very small copper coins, the Scriptures tell us. They were the smallest currency available in all of Israel. Each one was about one-hundredth of a denarius, or about five minutes of a day's labor at minimum wage. If you compute that into today's minimum wage, what she had was 60 cents. She had about 60 cents to her name, and she gave it. Jesus says she gave all she had to give. What would you do with your last 60 cents? What would you do with the last things you had on this planet? This woman was a widow. She as a woman had no social standing to begin with. And now she had no visible means of support. Her provider, her husband, had died, leaving her in desperate poverty. This happened all the time, by the way, in those days. Women without husbands were often in deep, deep trouble if no one else would take them in. Yet, this woman worshipped, worshipped with all of her heart, worshipped with all that she had, worshipped with gratitude, profound gratitude. In the movie Shenandoah, 
starring Jimmy Stewart. How many of you remember Jimmy Stewart? All right, there's a, old people here. Anyway, um, in the movie Shenandoah, which you know took place, you know the, the the story was supposed to take place in the Shenandoah Valley in Virginia. I drive through. It's beautiful, beautiful place. Stewart plays a widowed father of a large fam, farm family. He is a bitter man. Obviously, part of his bitterness is that the love of his life, his wife, has, has already died. And he also is a proud man. He focuses on his own self-sufficiency. And at the beginning of the film, he prays for each meal. And the only reason he prays for each meal is because his wife made him promise to do that before she died. But it's an awful prayer. And here's his prayer. Lord, we cleared this land. We plowed it. We planted it. We harvest the, harvested the crops. And we fixed the food. We worked till we were dog bone tired. And none of this would be here if it weren't for us. But thank you anyway. Amen. That is gratitude. By the way, if that's gratitude, you'd hate to hear his complaints. But then everything changes. The Civil War breaks forth. And Jimmy Stewart loses everything. His family is ripped apart, brother against brother, one going north, one going south. His daughter gives birth to a grandchild named Martha after Stuart's wife. But his daughter dies in childbirth. One of his sons is killed before his eyes by a frightened young sentry. And his youngest son, the apple of his eye, whom he loved because the boy reminded him so much of his wife, is carried off as a prisoner of war and lost to him for many years, and he doesn't even know where he is. Deep into the war, the remnants of the family gather around the table for a meal, and Jimmy Stewart starts to pray the old prayer. Lord, we cleared this land. We plowed it, but he cannot get through the prayer. He chokes up. He begins to cry. He can't go on. Suffering and loss and death have shattered his illusion of self-sufficiency. Ironic, isn't it, that loss and pain often open the door to gratitude? Toward the end of the story, against all hope, Jimmy Stewart is sitting in church. And guess what happens? His youngest son comes walking in, limping down the center aisle of the church. The son that was a POW. The son he thought he would never see again. And he comes down and he stands beside his father just at the time like we did this morning. And together they begin to sing, Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. The man, the bitter man, has gratitude in his heart now. Stuart's character came to realize that he had seen things all wrong. The reality was that he was living by the generosity of God all his life. Jimmy Stewart didn't put life in those seeds that grew. That was God. Jimmy Stewart didn't make the sun shine and the rain fall and put the nutrients in the soil. That was God. Jimmy Stewart didn't create his own healthy body by which he could farm. That was God. Jimmy Stewart didn't give all the, create all those children, children which he lost. That was God. Isn't it amazing that we don't appreciate what we have often until we lose it? We take so much for granted. 
So many miracles of God's goodness are often ignored until we lose them. You know, things like lungs and legs and eyes. You know, we take breathing for, for granted this morning. But I tell you, people with COPD and, and asthma in here don't take it for granted. We take legs and the ability to walk for granted. People who are having trouble getting around and need a walker don't take it for granted. We have eyes and we see, but people losing their sight, a piece at a time, don't take sight for granted. We have been given so much. Indeed, praise God from whom all blessings flow. This widow was still grateful even as she stood there that day at the temple. God had blessed her all her life, and she was alive, and she was grateful for her life and the care God had given her to get her to that point. Isn't it interesting that those with the least and those who have lost the most are often the most grateful, and those with the most often feel entitled to more? Isn't that interesting? This Pharisee, they gloried in themselves, but this widow with less material possessions than almost anyone there that day, she felt grateful and she worshiped the Lord. You know, it's easy to praise God when our bellies are full and things are going right. It's easy to worship when people love us and our needs are met and a lot of our wants, we get our wants too. It's what we all hope for. Jim Cobb, a Lutheran pastor from Virginia, talked about he did a wedding one time. True story. And it was obvious the bride was having still second thoughts about getting married even when she was at the altar to get married. And so she thought the pastor, obviously she wasn't very church, because when the pastor started talking about for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, and sickness and health, she thought that was a multiple choice option. And as she listened, she went, after he's finished saying the vows, she said, I'll take better, I'll take healthy, and I'll take rich. Wouldn't we all? But life doesn't give us that all the time, does it? The truest test of worship is if we can praise God even when the choices are worse, poor, and sick. That's when you know you're worshiping God. Let me ask you some basic, simple questions. Is God still good even when life isn't? Is God still good even when things aren't? I'm going to tell you something for everybody here today. I've gone through it myself. 95% of all theological and spiritual crises will revolve around this. Does God care when I am suffering? Does God care when I'm abandoned? Does God care when I'm depressed? And please forgive me for a simplistic answer because I can't go into a lot of detail. But the answer is this. God and life are not the same. We live in a fallen, broken world that doesn't work right. Have you noticed it's in all the papers when there used to be papers? And are we called to make it a better world? Yes. To bring justice, yes. To bring hope to those and help to those who need it, yes. To bring in the kingdom of God and make this world a better place, yes. But please, even with that agenda, do not confuse God with this world. Don't confuse life with God. 
It can't be that if I'm healthy, God loves me, and if I have cancer, he doesn't. That's a lousy theology. It can't be that if I have a job and just got a raise, Jesus cares. And if I just get fired, Jesus doesn't care. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. It cannot be that if I go to the mall and there's a parking place, Jesus is crazy about me. And if somebody rear-ends my car, he doesn't care a flip. Here's the basic question. Do we worship God or do we worship circumstances? Do we worship God or do we worship our health? Do we worship God or do we worship how much money we have? That is the question in its rawest form. Matthew Paul Turner took a youth group, church youth group, to Eastern Europe, and they visited a Romanian orphanage run by Catholics there. And as they got out of the bus, one of the orphans, a 12-year-old boy named John, ran out to greet them. And they were surprised at how happy this kid seemed. Welcome to Romania, he said loud and clear in near-perfect English as he grinned from ear to ear. Truthfully, Matthew said, most of us had come to the orphanage prepared to be silent and solemn and thoughtful. He said, I think most of us expected the orphans to act like the children on those starving TV commercials. He said, we didn't exactly expect the kids to be depressed, but we certainly didn't expect them to be happy. We were not expecting this exuberant welcome, especially from one of these kids. John, the 12-year-old boy, looked at them as they got off, and he said, Do you know the song, Jesus Loves Me, still grinning? They went, Yeah. And he said, Will you sing it with me? Of course we know the song. And he said, We all began singing it loudly. It was a little awkward at first because really the youth thought that singing Jesus Loves Me was kind of uncool. But they sang, Jesus loves me, this I know. And Matthew said, As we sang the words of that children's song, a hundred thoughts ran through my mind. I stared at this young boy intently. One of his eyes was disfigured, like a birth defect. His hair was greasy and matted. His clothes were old and unmatched. He had a large, strange scar around his mouth, possibly from a botched surgery to correct a cleft palate. For the Bible tells me so. All of us on the bus had just been discussing our fear of getting head lice from the orphan kids. A couple of the girls were grossed out by the mere thought. A couple of them asked for rubber gloves. Don't they have special shampoo here to kill head lice? Little ones to him belonged. I thought about how happy my own childhood had been. I'd never had to wonder where I was going to sleep at night. I never went to bed hungry or in need of anything. My parents were there and they loved me. They are weak, but he is strong. How could God allow a kid that he loves to be living in such conditions? Is God really here? Does he love us all the same? Is he good? And as he was thinking of these questions, he was singing the words led by John, this 12-year-old boy. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. When we finished the last line, we laughed. John laughed. Maybe it was just because a group of American young people were there to play games with him and his friends. 
But he said, but John struck me as inherently joyful. More joyful, in fact, than I am most of the time, he said. And he's a preacher. John, you know what was the source of his joy? He believed Jesus was good. And somehow circumstances did not cancel that out. John believed, that 12-year-old boy believed, the creator of the world loved him. He believed the Savior of the world had adopted him as his very own. We're all adopted, by the way, hallelujah. And whether earthly parents adopted him or not, he was a child of God. He believed that the love that flowed from the heart of Jesus passed right through the middle of his heart. By the way, the same love that passed through a widow's heart 2,000 years ago. And please hear this. What I'm telling you is not exceptional on a global basis. Most Christians in this world live in deprivation. They live in hostile environments. They live without much, much, much of what we have. And yet they still have a joy that often puts us to shame. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. Do we worship God or do we worship circumstances? If this widow believed that her circumstances were reflective of the heart of God, she would have never showed up at that temple. But she did. This widow, Jesus observed, saw far beyond circumstances. She saw beyond the immediate physical world. She saw into the invisible heart of God and she worshiped. And it touched the heart of Jesus. He was profoundly moved. She worshiped Jesus with 60 cents in her pocket. And she worshiped Jesus and God, the God of Israel, by throwing every last coin she had into one of those trumpets. Now, some of us might think this is irrational. If that's all you've got, you're supposed to hold on to it as hard as you can. If you've got 60 cents, hold on. Put it in an interest-bearing account. Can't you do the math, lady? It reminds me of the quote from the nutty professor. I, I, I was watching that for sermon preparation purposes. I knew there'd be something good in there Jesus wanted me to say. And one of the, one of the leaders of the school says, We produce three types of students, one who can count and one who can't. Out of the three, which are you? The one who can count or the one who can't? The fact that you're not laughing at this is an indictment on the public education system. (laughs) I'm sure this poor widow could do the math. She knew exactly what she was doing that day. She knew. But she didn't care about the math. She was in love. She worshiped with all she had, and it moved Jesus to his core. You see, God does not see as we do. He does not evaluate people in the same way we evaluate people. Others had put in the offering containers far more than her. I'm sure hundreds and thousands of times more than her. Yet, despite her two coins, Jesus said she had put in the most. 
Others gave out of their plenty, gave what they probably would hardly miss, Jesus said. But this woman gave everything. And in doing so, she was casting her life, her future, her survival into God's hands. It was an act of, her, her throwing that money into that trumpet was an act of absolute trust and obedience. It was an act of absolute surrender to the only one in control of her life. And she realized it. She was letting go of the outcomes she couldn't control anyway. She was saying, if I'm going to make it, it will only be by God's hand. Because i got no other means of support. If I'm going to eat another meal, it will only be because God provides it. There's no one else around. If I'm going to live, it will be because God gives me life. If I'm going to die, God will be with me at my death. It was her way when she threw in everything she had into that trumpet. It was her way of saying, Lord, you are really all I have. And so I give you all I have. That seems like a fair trade to me. Jesus saw the widow that day. He saw her as no one else saw her. Why? Because we look for, at the spectacular and the large. Jesus looks at the smallest acts of devotion and what is in the heart that gave it. We look at externals. Jesus looks at the spirit. We look at the famous. Jesus looks at the faithful. We look at amounts. Jesus looks at percentages. That's what he said. He said, some of you have given a little out of a lot, but there's a person here today who gave a lot out of little. God doesn't measure success the way we measure success. Have you noticed? The person who serves faithfully in an Arab country for 50 years and after 50 years has only 20 converts to show for it just might be considered more faithful and more successful than the pastor of an American megachurch in God's eyes. The pastor in China who oversees a small flock that takes its life in its hands every time it meets because they might be arrested or killed or persecuted, just might be considered more faithful and more successful by the Lord than some world-famous televangelist with millions of followers. The person who shares what little they have with their poor neighbors in Mozambique in the name of Jesus just might be considered more generous than Bill Gates and his hundreds of millions of dollars he has poured into the globe. God judges us by faithfulness and obedience and the spirit in which we give. The results are up to him. Faithfulness is up to us. And I do believe that one day in heaven, we will see people gathered around the throne of God receiving greater rewards who we have never heard of. One day in heaven, we'll see people like this widow, whose name we don't know, who gave all, and no one saw it except Jesus. It wasn't on TV or in the paper. But that's enough. Ultimately, you see, we live for an audience of one. Our attitude has to be, if he has seen it, it's enough. Because only Jesus sees the real cost of what we give. Only Jesus sees into the heart of the matter. Only Jesus sees into the heart of the giver. That's why we must never discriminate when it comes to who gives and what they give and the size of the gift. 
because someone better able to judge the gift than us is watching. I tell people, you know, people say, what, what, what should people give? Well, I, I kind of take Wesley's thing. Make all you can, save all you can, give all you can. And they say, well, what about tithing? What about 10%? I say, that's not New Testament. New Testament is give all you can. And, and if you can give a lot more than 10%, go to it. But if you want a starting place, okay, you can start at 10%. But there are people here in this church, and there are people all over the world that cannot do that. So I encourage them, if you can't give 10, give 5. If you can't give 5, give 3. If you can't give 3, give 1. If you can't do anything, give a dollar. Or like this woman, put in a couple of nickels, and God will see you. Don't give 10% if it means you cannot pay your bills. Don't give 5% if it means you and your family go hungry. But if you give what you can, no matter how small, there are loving eyes from the throne of God watching you with joy. Hallelujah. Remember, the New Testament church was composed almost entirely of poor people giving to poorer people in the name of Jesus. Everything, every gift counts in the kingdom of God. And there are other critical ways of giving. Our time, our talents, our gift, our love. For instance, you know, we talked about the bulletin insert today. We need people to sow into the lives of children here. We can sow seeds in a child's heart that will grow for a lifetime. It may not spring up now or five years now or ten years from now. But God has a way of making seeds come to life. Jesus loves the little children. All the children of the world, red and yellow, black and white. They are precious in His sight. You want to move the heart of God? Love children like Jesus loves children. The youth need help. I mean, Hank needs help. I can't say this right. Anyway, we need volunteers and mentors with the youth. Or maybe you're just a people person. We need greeters and ushers who can help people feel welcome here and who can begin to experience the love of Christ as it passes through your smile and through your handshake and through your bulletin. And again, take a look at what's in there. Pray about it and contact the contact person there. Some of you are not rich in money, but God has made you rich in something. Share it. We need it. The kingdom needs it. Give what you have and don't worry about what you don't have. That is the irony of the widow, by the way, in this story. On the surface, she was maybe the poorest person there from human eyes. But I think through Jesus' eyes, I think he saw her perhaps as the richest person of all at the temple that day. Jesus taught us you can be, have very little money and be filthy rich or actually wholly rich. You can be rich towards God. Rich towards God means loving God with all your heart and loving and enjoying people around you. That's rich towards God. Rich towards God means using your gifts to be blessings even as you're blessed. Rich towards God means taking the temporary and making it a servant to that which is eternal. Rich toward God means being full of God's spirit and God's grace and God's power and God's love and it's in your soul. It means, like this widow, storing up for yourself treasure in heaven. You know, it's amazing what God does with small gifts and big hearts. Isn't it? 
That's the story of the New Testament church. That's the story of the global church. It's not rich people helping out rich people. It's small gifts with big hearts all over the world, and it's been that way for 2,000 years. Because, you see, when Jesus looks at gifts, he doesn't look at the size of the gift. He looks at the size of the heart. There's a difference. Jesus said, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and still. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and still. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This widow had an eternal perspective that day. One of my favorite writers is John Ortberg. That is no secret. And I want to read something he said. He said, let's say you spend a week at a Motel 6. How likely would it be for you to take all your money and spend it on decorating your motel room at Motel 6? How probable is it that you would clean out your bank account and fix this thing with gold gilding and stuff, or Van Gogh paintings, or Elvis on velvet? By the way, I grew up in the South, and every, every home had three things. It had a giant Bible on the coffee table that weighed about 20 pounds. It had a picture of Jesus hanging on a wall, and across from Jesus, they had velvet Elvis. And often I wondered, which one do they worship the most? No, what would you do to your hotel room? You wouldn't even be tempted, because why? The motel room is not your home. You're only going to be there a little while. It would be foolish to waste the treasure of your one and only life on a temporary residence at Motel 6. Smart people are clear on what lasts and what doesn't, Jesus said. So Jesus says it is wise to store up treasure in what is eternal. What is eternal? God and people. This world is Motel 6. Your room, your home and furniture and clothes and possessions will last the equivalent of a few seconds compared to the eternity that will be occupied by your soul. It's not a bad place to stay and enjoy it while you're here, but Jesus says do not store up treasure in Motel 6. It's not your home. You're going to be here a little while. If you're going to stay up nights dreaming, dream about something better than how to upgrade your motel room. This widow had an eternal perspective. When she stood there that day at the temple, she said, I got 60 cents left. And I'm not going to invest that 60 cents in Motel 6. She stored up in her heart treasure from heaven and for heaven. And because of that, we're now listening to a sermon about her this morning. We saw a rich person that day at the temple, rich in spirit, rich towards God. May we all be as wealthy as she was. May we all have our souls as stuffed with true riches as she did. May we all see Motel 6 for what it is. A nice place to visit, but a terrible place to pour all your life. May we all see what true wealth is like she did. And be blessed because the same Jesus that watched her 2,000 years ago 
is the same Jesus as watching us now. What is he seeing? I'd like the worship team to come forward as we prepare to close this service. And I'd like you to close your eyes and bow your heads. And I'd like you to ask the Spirit one thing. What is it, Lord, that you want me to give for the kingdom? What is the gift, the talent, the money? What is it that you want me to give for the kingdom that you are bringing? Lord may be asking some of you, you need to give a dollar. Some of you, he may be saying, you need to help out this ministry or that ministry. Some may be saying, you have this gift and you haven't used it. It's needed. Lord, help us. Help us, Jesus. Help us to let you have it all. Help us, Lord, to give to you what we have. No matter how big or how small, help us to give it to you and let you multiply it. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand as we sing our final hymn? The altar will be open. I'd like the intercessors to come forward. We will pray for you about anything Let's worship the Lord.
Lord Jesus, help us to cling to you so that no matter what befalls us, it is well with our soul. Help us, Lord Jesus, to live with the, the loving abandon of this widow 2,000 years ago who said, I cast my life on God. What else is there to do? And so, Lord Jesus, bless us as we leave here. Help us to be generous with all that you have given us. And help us to be trusting with all that you will give us. In Jesus' name, amen.